Hi everyone, my name is Conley Kriegler and I'm a second year resident in radiation oncology at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Welcome to the Learn Oncology podcast series. This series is produced alongside Dr. Paris Ann Ingledew, a radiation oncologist at BC Cancer Agency. The goal of this podcast is to familiarize listeners with the pertinent topics and core concepts in oncology. As part of this series, we are collaborating with ROSIG, the Radiation Oncology Education Study Collaborative Group, a mouthful, for a subseries called Cancer Careers. We are hopeful that this will help our listeners better understand the life of an oncologist by exploring paths to different specialties and niches within oncology. You may find it inspires you to pursue oncology as a career or even just expand your knowledge of cancer care. Today, we are joined by Dr. David Palma, a radiation oncologist from London Health Sciences Centre in London, Ontario, a clinician scientist with the Ontario Institute for Cancer Research and a professor at Western University. His other accolades would take a whole episode to go through, uh, but include founding and chairing the Canadian Pulmonary Radiotherapy Investigators Group and writing the national bestseller, Taking Charge of Cancer, What You Need to Know to Get the Best Treatment. Lastly, his day job seemingly doesn't impair his ability to be an accomplished amateur marathon runner. Dr. Palma, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Conley. Thanks for having me. Uh, Dr. Palma, here we aim to keep things light. So I have a little icebreaker question for you to start. So I'm guessing you weren't born as an oncologist and you probably did some other jobs to keep the lights on in your past. Could you maybe tell us about maybe one of your first part-time jobs and what that was like? Well, my first part-time job that I could think of was a long, long time ago, which would have been a paper route. And the funny thing is we lived in an area that was just being developed. So many of the lots were empty at the time. So it would start with 30 houses and then it would be 50 and then 60. And when I first inherited it, it would only pay a little bit. And I would have to call them every time to tell them how many houses had been built in the, you know, in the past month. So they would increase the number of papers. But I sort of got ahead of myself, I would say, I was maybe optimistic in terms of the number of houses that were on the route. And I ended up probably getting paid a few more dollars per week than I should have. But uh, it it was certainly good in terms of work ethic because you spend a lot of time folding and sorting the papers and heading out into the cold just to make a few dollars. But when you're a kid, it makes a big difference. You know, you could head down to the 7-Eleven and buy some candy with uh, with your two or three bucks. Awesome. Well, that sounds very interesting. And I'm sure that was a great job for when you were 30 years old. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) I still do it. You know, that's why I'm a bit late this morning. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, So fast forwarding a little bit from that, could you maybe tell us a little bit about what first drew you to radiation oncology as well as what drew you to your career as a clinician scientist? Radiation oncology is a very unusual specialty. And I don't think too many people go into medical school thinking that they would do radiation oncology. I remember very well as a first year medical student looking at the CARMS website, which is the matching website here in Canada, for those of you who aren't in Canada, thinking, what do I want to be when I finish medical school? Because there were people in my class who knew already what they wanted to do, and you feel like you're behind. And I remember reading the list of specialties, and one of them was therapeutic radiology. And I thought to myself, why in the world would you ever want to be someone who just gives radiation? And then there was a a full 180 degree turnaround when I came to my clerkship and we rotated through and I really enjoyed radiation oncology. I enjoyed a lot of specialties. And I think one thing that people go into, and I was 
the same way going into clerkship. People think that your choice of specialty is like a math equation when there's only one answer, right? X equals four is right. X equals three is wrong. But I think for a lot of people, there's not one right answer to what you're going to be when you finish your, your medical school. Whether I was, would I be unhappy as a medical oncologist? Well, I'd probably be a little more stressed because I've come to realize that there is a difference in terms of um, intensity of, of jobs, but I would have loved to have been a pediatrician or, or many other different types of of jobs. So I think to take a little pressure off of our med students coming through now, I say to them, you could probably be happy in most specialties. If you think that you're only going to be happy as something very, very niche, then maybe you're being a bit too demanding on yourselves in terms of, self in terms of what you want to be. Well, thanks very much for that insight. With respect to your uh, job as a clinician scientist, what kind of drew you to that? It's It's been a funny, it was a funny journey. When I was in undergrad, I did research because I thought you needed to do that to get into medical school. And I really didn't enjoy it. It was bench, bench research. And then when I was in medical school, I did research because I thought you needed to that because I thought you needed to do that to get into uh, into residency. And, and and of course, you do to some extent, maybe. And it was a little bit more enjoyable. But I never saw myself as a researcher at all. But then what happened is during my residency, I had some really good mentors and I started to enjoy the research quite a lot. And it became different when it was your patients that you were asking questions about. But the funny thing for me is that I didn't really have any original research ideas during my residency at all. It was all what had been handed down to the staff. And as I was finishing my residency, before I went to my fellowship, this position came available here where I am now in London. And it was a clinician scientist position. And I said, oh, that sounds amazing. So I went off to start my fellowship, which was in Amsterdam at the VU. And I remember saying to my wife, Cheryl, Cheryl's a family doc. I said to Cheryl, I haven't had any of my own research ideas. This might be a bit of a challenge when I get to having to run, you know, a research program on my own. But what happened for me halfway during fellowship is that something sort of clicked. And then I was able to think of these questions on my own. So I say to residents often now, you know, if you are not coming up with your own research ideas, that is totally fine. You just need to get to a point where you have a good enough understanding of where the where the coal face is, where you know people are generating new ideas, and then once you get there, you'll you'll find it. So I'm really impressed when occasionally residents come into my office and say, "I want to do this, I want to do that, I have some ideas." It's I think you're ahead of schedule. So it's just it was something that 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 I would have say said was unexpected that I ended up in research, but I love it. I think now. One of the most interesting things about my job is the research. When you're doing analyses, you know, right now, for example, we are doing the analysis for STOP, which was a, an RCT for oligoprogression. And I don't know what the results are going to be. In a couple of weeks, we're going to get the output from our statistician. It's really neat because you just have no idea. It's like when you're maybe in a lab and you're growing some cells and you don't know if it's going to work or not. It's kind of the same. It's a very unique thing to see this data and to see if it's going to impact what we do. Awesome. Well, that is very interesting. And I think probably a lot of our listeners will uh, be very happy to hear that even David Palma didn't like uh, research very much as an undergrad or med student. So now we know a little bit about what kind of brought you here. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what you do now? Specifically, I'm wondering if you could tell us about something that sounds very cool, Sabre or SBRT. Uh, could you tell us a bit about Sabre and what interests you about it, particularly its use in patients with metastatic cancer? Yeah, for sure. So for those of you, for the listeners who haven't heard of Sabre, it's a neat term, a neat acronym for stereotactic radiation, which is just a term for a very precise form of radiation 
accurate within a few millimeters that gives very high doses of radiation in a very short period of time. So a radiation dose that 15, 20 years ago might be given over six weeks, Monday to Friday, so 30 treatments. Now we can give an equivalent dose in just a single treatment for lung cancer, for example. Saber is generally used for small kind of targets. So you wouldn't use Saber for someone with a 15 centimeter lung tumor, maybe with a two centimeter lung tumor or a four centimeter lung tumor or a brain metastasis. And Saber was originally used, things like Saber were originally used for brain metastases and primary lung tumors that were small, but has branched out now to other uses, including primary kidney cancers, for example, prostate cancer, um, and oligometastases, where most of my research has been. Okay, so now we know what you do today, other than your paper route. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what you think might maybe be changing or uh, coming down the pipeline in like the next decade or so? I'm hoping to mine all of your ideas and steal them for myself. So the funny thing about research and life is that it's just incredibly unpredictable and if you had asked 90 if you had asked 100 oncologists 15 years ago would we be using immunotherapy widely in 2022 i think almost all would have said no because nothing has worked right so science advances in these major shifts all of a sudden and they're very very hard to predict i think the more most obvious answer would be the combination of radiation with immunotherapy. And it's something that we haven't unlocked just yet. There's a lot of hype around the abscopal effect, meaning you treat one lesion with radiation and maybe in the presence of some systemic immunotherapy, you can enhance, enhance the response elsewhere. That's proved a little bit evasive to find. There's this Canadian meme from before when memes were around of, of Pokeroo, which when I was a kid was this cartoon character that you couldn't find. And so the Canadian listeners who are, you know, 30 years old plus may may, may know that reference that the scopal effect is a bit like this pokeroo that we can't find. I do think that we are going to find some way of using radiation to enhance the immune response. And there's some new data out of Chicago that suggests maybe aneuploidy is, uh, is a marker for that. It's hard, it's hard to say, but Although I probably can't predict exactly where we'll be in 10 years, I think everything is going to be completely different, just like it's been different from 10 years ago. And where things are going to go, it's hard to say. You know, as one example, right now we're running this trial called Saber Comet 10, which is for people up to 10 metastases, and giving stereotactic radiation to all of them, which would have been considered a little bit insane maybe 15 years ago to treat all these lesions. And so in about a couple of years, we're going to get output from this trial. And it's a phase three trial, overall survival. And if the trial is negative, then our specialty probably goes one way. And if the trial is positive, then especially probably goes the other way. And I, I, it's hard to say, which, you know, nobody really knows which way it's going to be. So, so much of this is unpredictable, but we're lucky to be in especially where things are changing with technology so much. So I'm really excited, you know, to see what the, what the future is going to hold. Awesome. And I think you touched on this a little bit, but do you see for people who are maybe starting a career in cancer care now compared to when you started, do you think there's going to be anything kind of difference as far as what the the job demands are, what your typical kind of workload looks like? I do, I do think it's going to be different. And to give some context, people have been saying since the 1950s that radiation oncology is going to become obsolete because of the improvement in systemic therapy. And so far that hasn't panned out. I think 
in some instances, the indications are increasing and increasing. Some of them go away, right? And if we find that a new systemic therapy reduces the need for radiation, that's fantastic. Although people say, well, that's going to impact jobs and stuff. That's actually, we, you know, ideally we want to cure cancer and then nobody has a job and we got to deal with that. But the way I envision things is that radiation is going to continue to adapt. Cancer is going to become more of a chronic disease. And there are going to be more and more indications where some lesions escape control from whatever systemic therapy is, is working. So the job market in Canada has changed in the past year or two, where for a long time, jobs are very, very hard to get. You absolutely needed a fellowship, which would be a year after residency of extra training. And then you could get hired. But because the number of radiation oncology positions has gone up, the need for radiation oncologists has gone up. I believe there have been some more retirements just with pandemic related stuff. And I think people are a bit less keen to increase their workload when they have the option of hiring, right? Because of that, now we're seeing people hired at big academic centers with maybe a six-month fellowship or, or, or even no fellowship. The, the fellowship itself can be somewhat controversial because I know in the U.S. there's a lot of debate. Are fellowships good or are fellowships bad? And the answer to that question is yes, some are good and some are bad. And for me, my fellowship was the launching pad to everything that I've done since I went to Amsterdam, kind of on a whim, and ended up at this place with Ben Slotman and Sarah Sennon, and that sent me in one trajectory for my life that otherwise I wouldn't have pursued. Other fellowships might not be so good. And so even for Canadians now who have the option of taking a job without a fellowship, what I say to them is just to think about what their long-term goal is. And is a fellowship essential to that? In some cases, it might be important to do that. In other cases, it might not. And sometimes you can get some of that training during your first couple of years. So some things that, that a fellowship can provide is you know maybe a degree or training in some kind of statistical approach. You know, I did a master's in epidemiology, which I use all the time to do sample size calculations. Um, or it can provide exposure to a new technique. And I've, I've known oncologists to do their do their masters in the first couple of years of practice. So there's no hard and fast rule about what to do, what not to do. But to answer your question, I think things are changing. And it's great. I think, you know, residents and medical students are so well-trained. Society puts so much into them. I think in an ideal world, there should not be this situation of, am I going to work? Do I have to go work at the North Pole to get a job? We need to improve on that. And so hopefully we're seeing that. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you very much for giving us a peek into your crystal ball. So uh, I know we've talked a lot about what you do, but for our last question, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what kind of keeps you motivated and engaged with your job. That's a really good question. When I was a med student and I was thinking of doing radiation oncology, um, someone from another specialty who was a very well-renowned Canadian said to me, don't do radiation oncology because you're going to be bored. You're going to learn it all in a couple of years and then there'll be nothing to do. And that that's not true at all. But I think what keeps me motivated, there are a few different things. One is that I try to view my job kind of like a marathon, right? So you mentioned that I'm an amateur marathoner. I'm getting more amateur as I get older <laughs> every, every year. I think the clocks just run faster every year until my times go up. But I think it's really important to protect against burnout because I think it's the number one threat. And when I was a resident in Vancouver, there was an amazing medical oncologist who I thought was one of the best people I'd ever worked with. And she burnt out at about 50 and she retired. And I thought to myself, we've just lost maybe 10 years of 
amazing patient care because we were unable to control our pace. And for those of you who haven't run marathons, it's not as terrible as you might think. But the, the with the marathon, you feel really, really good. But if you're going just a bit too fast, about three quarters of the way through, you just blow up and you're walking, right? So you have to, at the beginning, make sure you're going slower than you think you should. And I think in some ways there's some parallels with the career is you have to have sort of, you have to keep an eye on your pace and you have to say no to things in a nice way that you might otherwise say yes to if it doesn't fit with your goal. And there are some phrases I use for that. And the, my favorite one is, you know, I just don't have the bandwidth. This is a great idea. I'd love to join the parking committee, but I just don't have the bandwidth right now, you know? And sometimes you feel bad for not taking on things, maybe not the parking committee thing, but other things that might be helpful, but it is also an opportunity for other people. And I think the other thing that keeps me motivated is we, uh, I'm at a medium-sized cancer center for Canada. We have about 20 radiation oncologists, about 20 medical oncologists, and it's a good size that allows us to maintain pretty good cohesiveness. The pandemic has been difficult for that. Online meetings, I think you lose a lot. You know, we're social creatures and we respond very well. There's probably a lot of dopamine when we have, when we smile and laugh together that you don't get so much online. And I, I think the final thing that motivates me is, is the, the residence, is the future. And so I'm right now 44. I'm probably getting to the halfway point of my career. And I've taken on more of a role of helping to mentor new people run their trials. And it's really, really cool for a lot of reasons. One is that I get to be involved in a lot more trials with less work for trial because they're doing everything. But, but at the same time, you can see them really get excited and 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 want to do these, these trials. And, and one example of that is we have a, a resident here who's running a little RCT looking at randomizing head and neck patients to opioid analgesia, which is the standard versus a non-opioid multimodal analgesia. And just to see 60 patients or something, just to see the excitement in that and think, okay, this person is going to be doing trials maybe for their whole life, right? And that's kind of a motivating thing. And then I guess, you know, Conley, you probably see this as well, is people always ask, and I think a lot of our listeners will realize this, when you're on call, an oncologist, people always say, you know, how do you deal with the sadness? Have you, you've probably had that question, Conley, I mm. guess. You know, and I think that the one thing about oncology, if you can maintain this perspective, is that you see that a lot of bad stuff happens to people, you know, and it, it, you can look at that in a couple of ways. You can say, wow, this is really depressing because it can be very depressing sometimes. And you can internalize that and become depressed or you can sort of use it to sort of reinforce your sense of gratitude, right? That right now, this day, I'm healthy. My kids are healthy. My wife is healthy. We're having a fun conversation and things are good. And when you look at what predicts happiness in people's lives, it tends to be a sense of gratitude and a sense of community. Those are the big ones, a sense of purpose. And, and we have all those things. So I try to keep that perspective. And so far, you know, I'm I'm 12 years into my career. So far, still going. And I think the pace is right. And uh, I'm excited to see what the next years will bring. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Palma. That is all the time that we have for today. But I really appreciate all of your insight. And, uh, you know, if the paper route doesn't work out, I'm sure you could get a side job as a uh, motivational speaker. So to our listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. Uh, we will provide more helpful episodes in the future. Plus, we want to hear from you. So please fill out our short survey so we can keep improving our show. The survey link can be found in our show notes. If you want to learn more, please check out learnoncology.ca or you can check us out on Instagram at learnoncologyca. Also, you can check out rossig.org org that is r-o-e-s-c-g dot org thanks so much and see you soon